Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. Tune in weekly so you don't miss a thing. Your mission is critical. Your resources are finite. You need a partner that can deliver customized, scalable, and relevant donor communications that increase response and maximize net long-term revenue for your cause. You need Altus Marketing. Check us out at altusmktg.com or email me directly at a-o-l-s-e-n at a-l-t-u-s-m-k-t-g.com to learn how we can elevate your fundraising results. And now here's today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show today. This is Andrew Olson. I've got Roy Jones coming to us from, uh, from the road. Roy, how are you? Very good. Sorry about the noise, but we'll get through it. Now, now Roy, you are, you are actually out making donor visits uh, on July 6th, or yeah, July 6th today. And I hear that July is the time that donors don't want to meet with people. <laughs> All it means is you got to increase the front end activity. Donors, there are certain people that are waiting for you to call. It's just you got to make enough calls to get to them. I had four donor meetings today, so I'm, I'm midway through with it. Awesome. So um, I'm really excited about our conversation today. We are here with uh, Andrew McIndo, who is Vice President of Development at Heritage Foundation. Uh, and in that role, Andrew leads the organization's uh, fundraising program for 500,000 of their members. He's responsible for over $130 million of giving each year uh, across annual and, and major gifts and, and all sorts of different areas. Andrew, did I get this right? Do you have 50 people on your team? That's it. Yeah, it's an Dude. honor. I'll tell you what. Dude, that's, that's, a, that's a big team. That's a big a uh, big number to have to cover every year. Uh, I'm excited to get to talk to you today about um, how we infuse business school thinking into uh, the nonprofit sector and what that means. Um, but before we get into that, first of all, just welcome to the show, man. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, uh, what's that? Longtime listener, first time caller. And so love the Rainmakers. Uh, Roy and I had the great opportunity to get to know each other in the last couple of years. And Andrew, you were a guy I knew on LinkedIn up until a couple of months ago. We finally had dinner and yeah. actually met some person, had a great steak and a glass of wine. And uh, I love that. And I'm just so thrilled to be here uh, with you two who are really legends in this space and facilitate meaningful conversations that uh, that fundraisers, you know, iron sharpens iron. And we need to we need to be sharing best practices and talking about what's working, sharing our failures and I appreciate you guys providing a venue to do that. Amen, man. Yeah, appreciate you being here. Before we jump into the, the questions for the day, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself and about your work that's, that's you know, people can't find in your bio. Yeah. Well, let's see. I, uh, I work here in the swamp of Washington, D.C. now. I've been at the Heritage Foundation for 10 years. I guess those are things you can read from my bio. Uh, what, you won't, what you won't find is that I was born and raised in North Carolina. And, uh, and just love it down there. My folks are still down there, a sister there. And uh, my wife and I uh, go visit any, any chance that we get. She's a, an Air Force brat. And so moved around a bunch of different times. We've got two little ones, a four and a half year old little girl at home and an eight month uh, old son. They both have ear infections this week. So uh, she has the harder job on the home front than I do sitting here in the office. Uh, but I'm grateful for, uh, for a loving wife and great uh, kind of family support structure. I'll tell you what, I um, you know, I went to Grove City College, did a, a lot of debates and was interested in politics throughout high school and college, uh, a bunch of internships while I was in, in school and 
uh, got in and introduced to the fundraising space, really fell into it, which I think is a, a story that's common among fundraisers. And I'm so grateful uh, that I did, you know, God's God's providence and, um, and, and putting me in this great position and the work of the Heritage Foundation, there's plenty for us to do. And these public policy battles that are uh, wage uh, that are uh, waging every day, every month, and so a lot of a lot to animate our work. And what a what a great privilege it is to go and uh, and have the support of so many um, Americans across the country who part with their resources, and because we've got the same values and the same dreams and hopes and aspirations for this country. That's awesome, man. Uh, thank you again for being here. So the the genesis of this conversation actually came from when you and I had dinner. And, and you said something that I thought was really interesting. You, you said that you thought that um, that nonprofit organizations could really benefit from uh, MBA thinking. And just broadly speaking, what do you mean by that? I, uh, I I joke around and say that you know just because we work at non for profits does not mean that we need to operate at a loss. <laughs> uh, and I think that that is. That, uh, that we as fundraisers understand, but more nonprofit leaders need to understand. There's a great quote from one of my old mentors, Morton Blackwell, who runs an organization called the Leadership Institute. And he always said, you can't save the world if you can't pay the rent. Uh, and I think that's true. Uh, we, are, we are all um, you know, mission-oriented, values-oriented folks, right? Uh, if we're dedicating our careers and our lives to working in, in these industries, if we believe in our these causes so much, if we're as passionate as we are, shouldn't we be the absolute best, uh, you know, business people, leaders, strategic thinkers, uh, financial gurus, uh, team builders, uh, fundraisers possible? And so there's so much to be learned from the private sector, from Fortune 10, 50, 100, you know, 500 companies. Uh, they do those, they do so many things so, so well there's not always a one-to-one comparison in the nonprofit space, but there's uh, there's certainly more there to be learned uh, and applied in nonprofit thinking than there than there's not, uh, and so that that's why we believe in these ideas so much and these causes so much. We should be the absolute best leaders and uh, business people as possible, and uh, and so that's why I'm passionate about that. You know, it's, there's, there's the other side of the coin. I, I'm one of these guys, Andrew, that. Uh, I mean, I've got my master's degree. It's an MBA from Liberty with a concentration in human services, but uh, I can't tell you how much it helped me personally. Talk to me about that side, kind of the other side of the coin. There's running the, the organization as a business, but then how did, how did that MBA help you personally? Well, it's helped me personally as a, as a leader, right, and learning how to navigate difficult situations, crisis communications. Um, when things go wrong, it, it's helped me learn to manage different personality types, right? And I can't use the same management style on every every person on a 50-person team. I need to adapt. And business school gave me an, an amazing opportunity to you know, understand about my own strengths and weaknesses and how those things impact uh, impact the team. So I think, uh, you know, from that leadership perspective, from a communications perspective, it's made me a stronger leader in that way. Uh, uh, but let's say this too, you know, as a fundraiser, I'm often uh, I'm fortunate to get to sit across the table from people that have done really well in business, who have sold their businesses, who are in, uh, titans of industry. And uh, I like to think that going to business school, learning about valuations and calculating IRRs and learning uh, all different, uh, you know, the differences between a balance sheet and uh, a statement of cash flows, I can have a, you know, somewhat 
a legitimate or knowledgeable conversation with these folks and ask insightful questions that give me more um, more insights into uh, a business sale that just happened or something that happened with their family business. And so that's that's a really practical answer, Roy, but I think it's really true. It's helped me uh, uh, just be knowledgeable and conversant in, in a lot of different subjects. Uh, I think about, uh, I went to, I went to Darden. So we did the case study. We did, you know, 300 cases over the course of two years. So ra- ranging in all sorts of different industries too, right? So I could talk about, uh, you know, plumbing and shower heads and market segmentation from a case there and also Caterpillar, heavy, uh, he- heavy equipment and everything kind of in between. So it's a, uh, you know, that, that phrase master, uh, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. There's, there's a certain practicality there in fundraising where having that kind of knowledge and broad-based uh, uh, knowledge set is helpful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, it's interesting, Andrew, because I, I often hear the other side of this from organizations where they say, you know, we're, we're skeptical when our board or our, you know, our founder wants to bring in a quote-unquote business person, right, and a corporate type. And there's this, I, I think, fear maybe that that what they mean by that when a board says that is they're going to bring someone in who's focused on cost cutting and and you know getting rid of jobs or you know not caring for the people and only looking to maximize profit um and and there's a lot of pushback uh, oftentimes in the social service arena uh, around the idea of people coming into the sector from the corporate world uh, when the, and trying to run organizations when they don't have the the experience in the seat in a nonprofit setting. Talk to us about that. What what's legitimate there? What what do you think is maybe flawed thinking? I think it's a I think it's a legitimate concern and and, and some some fair questions. Uh, but that said, uh, you, you know, I think in any situation like this, you have to be careful not to paint with too broad of a brush. Right. And you could say that about all business people or corporate types in the same way that those business people and corporate types probably talk about those social services folks and people who maybe don't have some of those same skills. There's there's a happy medium there. Uh, I'll say in my experience, I've you know, we've hired some people or brought some people in that were probably too much from the uh, the consulting class and didn't fit in with the culture. Uh, and that's just something that you've got to be cognizant of and interview for. You need to look for culture fit more than anything. But the upsides of hiring people who have that kind of background, in my opinion, drastically outweigh the downsides, right? And that's after you've kind of taken care of some of that vetting. I mean, there is so much, uh, so much to be learned um, from uh, the, from the business sector, from private pri- private practice, private sector uh, that can be applied. The the good outweighs the bad. I mean, we are. Um, uh, you know, at, at, in the development team here at Heritage, we really think of ourselves as the hub of a wheel with a bunch of different uh, spokes off of it, right? It's a complex organization. We've got 300 people, a lot of different uh, products, uh, you know, if you will. And uh, and it, it's our job to make sure that things are in alignment and working well together. And uh, folks from the business world have a lot better, generally speaking, again, and I don't want to paint with too broad of a br- brush, but have a lot better experience getting things to work together operationally mm-hmm. uh, and to have things that are measurable with, uh, with, you know, with outcomes. And nonprofits need to be thinking about KPIs and we need to be thinking about metrics and, and goals. And while we don't have revenue uh, uh, right in the same way that a business does, uh, there are certainly ways that we can measure um, both outcomes and outputs in a way that's valuable that actually helps our our mission. 
and helps us deliver more of what we uh, are, are called to and want to do as organizations to help human flourishing in whatever, uh, in whatever sector nonprofits we're in. Makes a lot of sense. Andrew, do you think it's more the MBA's impact on you as more influence as a fundraiser or as a marketer, or is it both? The, the MBA experience for me, um, it's, it's helped me lead with an enterprise-wide perspective. Hmm. I think that was the biggest thing. It was, it was learning. I can't always just wear my fundraiser hat. I can't always just wear my marketer hat, uh, my marketing hat. You, you need to be you need to be versatile and think about how um, things that the left arm is doing impact what the right arm is doing. And so, I uh, I think that's what's helped me. Um, and and business school is good at the general management and, and making people well rounded and learning that you can't just make a decision through an accounting lens or an, or a marketing lens or an operations lens. All those have all those things have to be in sync. And so uh, that's helped me in my position, right? And leading this great team, the things that we send out in direct mail need to be in sync with, uh, you know, we need to be sending it to the right people at the right time. If things don't go well, we need to have good customer service that's happening and we need to be upgrading people along the way. So who are our major gifts team uh, uh, phoning them, right? And, and what kind of proposals are we putting in front of them? What products are those donors most interested in purchasing and at what time and who's asking them? Right, all these questions that we wrestle with uh, all the time. I am a, a better at making decisions about those things because I have an, an understanding of what's going on in the whole donor ecosystem, uh, let alone the whole you know kind of ecosystem of the organization. And so that's that's what's been most helpful for me. I can think about things more from an enterprise wide perspective, thinking like a CEO, which means I'm I'm not thinking about uh, something just in my silo or. With my, uh, you know, with my my uh, certain colored glasses on. That's interesting. You know, the, the other thing that jumps top of mind with me, um, uh, what's your feeling? Uh, and you probably know mine because I am a CFRE about non-degree programs and those kind of credentials. Helpful, yeah. waste of time. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think helpful for sure. I mean, I'm a big. I think continual learning, continual education. Uh, is uh, is super um, super important. So if it's the CFRE uh, designation, if it's going to get an MPP, an MPA, an MBA, a, a JD, we could talk about pros and cons of, of all of those things. But um, I, you know, I think going and getting a higher education uh, is important. It should be done with a certain end in mind, right? You want to uh, not go and just get a degree for uh, the pedigree sake or the credential, you want to really get something out of it. So, you know, you got to be thoughtful about what kind of school, what kind of program is it worth? Uh, is it worth the money uh, to spend on those things? But generally speaking, I think, um, you know, if you're, if you're doing everything that you can in your current role to take on more responsibility, to learn more, and you want to grow, or you want to maybe have option value to go and pivot to something else or grow in your responsibilities, then looking at outside Credentials or education is a, a great opportunity to uh, to consider, uh, and it's smart. I mean, like we said at the beginning, iron sharpens iron, right? And so there are there are a lot of good best practices to be learned. Uh, and I'd rather learn from someone else's failures and make my own mistakes than make somebody make make the same mistakes that somebody else made a couple of months ago or a couple of year, years ago. That that to me is a lot of value just in that in and of itself. You know, it's interesting. Uh, the thing that that I was very fearful, I went back and got my MBA after age 50. 
I won't tell you how old I am now, but uh, but as an older guy, just the, the thought of going back to school and just the rigors of getting that MBA, um, it frightened me at first, yeah. but it ended up giving me a lot of confidence on the job. Talk, talk about that a minute. Well, I mean, what do they say? If you, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. And I, I worked full-time at Heritage and did full-time business school at, uh, at UVA. And I'll tell you what, my social life uh, outside of work and school suffered, but I learned that I had the capacity to do more than anything that I ever imagined. Uh, I found more time in the day. I was more disciplined uh, and felt more accomplished when I walked across that stage to get my diploma. Uh, I had a, 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 at the time, I guess she was nine months old. I carried her across the stage. I'm glad I got all the heavy beauty quantitative stuff done before she was born. It would have been a lot, a lot harder, but you learn about yourself. You learn to stretch yourself. You learn about um, trade-offs. You learn about decision-making in that process. So I got to flex muscles like that and, and become, I think, a, a better you know leader in the workplace, but a, a better husband in that time, though I was gone a little bit less, I was a lot more intentional with my time when I was with my family. And so there, there are a lot of lessons where like that, you know, that I learned when I was doing the program, super similar to the things you learned too. It was a great accomplishment. So Andrew, I want to, you, you mentioned the, the quantitative stuff there. Um, and yeah. I'm, I'm really curious about that because I feel like um, oftentimes in our sector, there is a lack of uh, financial acumen, um, e even for people who are responsible for generating revenue, right? Um, talk a little bit about how the, the rigors of, of MBA level finance and accounting uh, courses can help add value to, a, to an organization and to an individual who's, who's managing, say, a fundraising program or a, or a department like you are. I'd answer that question, Andrew, in a couple of different buckets. One, and probably the most broad or general, but uh, when you're running a fundraising team, uh, gross revenue is important, right? But net revenue should really be the terminal metric uh, at, at the end of the day, right? And you want to think about lifetime value and long-term value, but um, it's not just about chasing a big gross number. Uh, if it costs you an exorbitant amount to, to raise that. And there are certain situations where you should spend a lot of money in order to, to prospect um, and not just be solely focused on net. But when we're you know, dealing with an $80 million a year organization, I need to hit that $80 million number, but it's probably even more important for me most years to hit the $42 million net revenue number, right? Because those are the resources that the organization is going to use to fight the policy battles that we're fighting, to help the people, to communicate the messages, uh, that we're trying to communicate. And so that's a, a pretty basic, right, financial understanding, gross revenue versus net revenue. Yep. But that, that you need to look at and understand, and we wrestle with all the time. And you need to be to have the complexity to know that in some years, it's worth spending a lot more money in direct mail prospecting or losing money. Uh, and, and then to be able to ask, all right, well, when are we going to break even? What's the lifetime value of these donors? Uh, and, and so you know, having the financial acumen to look at those kind of spreadsheets, ask those kinds of questions is super, super important because we have a fiduciary responsibility to be good stewards of our donor resources. And so we don't want to be throwing good money after, ba uh, after bad. But at the same time, donors would be upset if we weren't investing in 
growing our uh, donor base because it's just going to mean more, uh, more um, you know, results for our mission uh, down the road. So I'd answer that in that first bucket. Generally, the second one would would be thinking about stewardship. You know, think about but what does it look like to put together a budget proposal for a major gift donor, and then how are you going back and reporting on that? The success that you've had. Where did that money go? What kind of impact did it have? The financial, you know, uh, the accounting courses and finance courses have helped me rethink how we articulate the, that that budget and then the reporting mechanism um, on the major gift side. And I think that's uh, really helpful as well, especially when you're doing a, a, a proposal or a report for somebody who's in maybe high finance in New York, right? They're looking for something that's a little bit different than somebody else uh, may be, right? And so just having that understanding and knowing what those, those different things that are out there uh, it is is really helpful. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, I One thing I'm curious about, given what's going on in the market right now, what we're seeing with inflation, um, all the craziness that, that happened over the last couple of years with the pandemic, how do you feel like your uh, MBA program and the experience you had um, equipped you or didn't equip you to to be more nimble and to to move more quickly through crisis and chaos did did you get was that a muscle that you ended up developing as part of that process is there is there benefit around that kind of thinking that that you could see from a, a program like this you know, I think business school gives you a lot of good frameworks that you then have to go and apply and pressure test in real life. Hmm. And so, um, you know, it's one thing to be reading a case or reading a story about a an organization or a company who launched a product and it failed miserably and they had this whole crisis communications plan. Uh, but what's Mike Tyson say? Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face, right? Yeah. So there's something to be said for learning frameworks. I thought business school helped me with that tremendously. I'll tell you, I'm glad I did business school part-time and I continued to work full-time. We had a leadership tra- uh, transition happen at Heritage during some of the time that I was uh, in business school. I had actually gone through a crisis communications <clears throat> class and then this leadership change happened and there were a lot of questions around uh, that we had to answer around that. Um, you know, maybe saying it was a crisis on, on the on the work front is a little bit extreme, but there were a lot of parallels. And I felt like I was able to uh, apply a lot in real life uh, from things that I learned in the classroom to conversations that we were having in the boardroom. Uh, and that was super valuable. I think, too, I mean, thinking about agility and nimbleness and how you put together teams, how you run meetings, um, how you communicate expectations to employees how you uh, coach someone during a crucial conversation. Uh, those are things that um, in business school, you learn theoretically, uh, but but because in business school specifically, you often have a couple of years of work experience under your belt. The conversations that you have among your classmates about, well, you know, I had to coach this one person during this really difficult time and here's how I did it. You learn so much from your classmates in those types of conversations. And so, I do feel like it helped me with those, with those frameworks and, uh, and 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 having that kind of that practical experience. Um, we've got a, a more of a culture of entrepreneurialism in the Heritage Development Office. I think of as a result of uh, you know of the, of the MBA and because of the great culture that we have here, willing to take risks, being okay with failure. You know, those are a lot of things that um, that are talked about at B School. Things that are easy to say, 
uh, you know, things that are, are well known, but then to go out and practice them to develop a whole culture around them is something that um, uh, requires a lot of repetition and to really lean into and to demonstrate willingness on and celebrate when you do things well and be okay when, when things don't go well and, and build that type of culture. Uh, uh, and, and so B school helped me, you know, c- c- connect the dots between a lot of those different things. Cool. So, you know, I think for some of our listeners, as they're, as they're hearing you talk here, they're probably thinking something like, yeah, I'd love to do this, but either I can't afford it or I'm so busy that I can never find time to do this. What, uh, what role do you think boards and CEOs need to be playing to, to help their staff both identify and take advantage of those opportunities, but also to make the space and to, to even create investment to, to help uh, their employees make that happen? What, what does that need to look like? I think boards and boards and CEOs have an obligation to provide space and resources and time for their employees to go and pursue continuing education. And and let's you know, listen, a business school, grad school is not for everybody. Um, it, it can be expensive. It doesn't have to. It can be time consuming. It doesn't have to. It, it depends on individual scenarios. And so I hope people don't hear me and say, all right, well, you know, Andrew's saying that everybody should go and do uh, you know do a two year degree program at the best business school they can get into. No, not necessarily. That's not, not for everybody. I do think a lot of this thinking should be applied, but there are other ways to pick it up. I mean, boards should encourage um, people in their organizations to go and do the one-week class at a business school or grad school somewhere. They should encourage people to go and uh, spend time on LinkedIn learning or uh, you know, to go and get the CFRE designation, to go to conferences. You know, the Institute for Charitable Giving puts on amazing uh, uh, workshops. Uh, y'all put on great, uh, great workshops, right? Uh, that continuing education is important. So whether it's business school or it's fundraising, or uh, if it's going and doing a, a American Management Association course on uh, uh, finance 101 or, or how to lead people, um, I think boards and, and CEOs should regularly be asking as a part of your employee life cycle, right? You want to identify, recruit folks, identify them, train them, retain them in that mm-hmm. training and development conversation, you should be asking what percentage of your workforce is, you know, is actively pursuing some kind of formal training and development uh, or informal for that matter. What resources are you providing people? Um, or do you have a host, you know, you could do small things. Could you host a book club once a month and read a Jim Collins book every once in a while, in addition to the, all, you know, all the other great fundraising books or things that nonprofits do. There are, there are easy ways uh, that I think are scalable to get in into this that don't require a significant investment of time and money. And so we should be creative in how we think uh, about that. But again, I'll, you know, I'll come back to the earlier point that I made. If we believe so much in our missions and what we're doing for our organizations, I would argue that we have a moral obligation to provide the mm-hmm. time and space and encouragement for our employees to go and do that because we want them to be the best they can be. Nonprofits are powered by people. So our people should be as strong as they can be in all these different areas. And so if it's business school, if it's this uh, uh, designation certification, if it's reading this book, we should constantly be investing in ourselves and investing in our teams because only good things are going to come out of that. Love that. Thank you. Okay. So we've got just a few minutes left. I want to take you through a couple like rapid fire questions. Um, for for the the brand new fundraiser, the brand new development leader, um, what's what's one piece of advice you'd give them on their journey? 
Uh, don't be scared of the word no. <laughs> if, if you're not if you're not out there uh, asking for gifts or uh, or you know questioning the status quo, then you're probably not not doing enough to grow. You're not you're not operating with a growth mindset. You're operating with a, a fixed mindset. Uh, and relatedly, you should know the difference between if you're talking to a donor, you should know the difference between a no and a hell no. And most of the time when we're out there talking to donors and asking for gifts and asking for partnership and philanthropy, uh, when people tell us no, they're not telling us hell no. They're just telling us not right now. You didn't ask for the right amount. Uh, you're not the right person to ask me. Uh, it wasn't the right time. It's not for the right project. And you got to get really good at asking questions, right, in order to overcome those objections. So don't look at no as a closed door. Don't be scared. Don't let it hurt your ego. Fundraisers, you all know, uh, we need to have healthy egos because we should be hearing no a lot because that means that we're actually advancing the relationship with the donor in our organization. We're overcoming those objections. Uh, so I see a lot of people new in their career or nonprofit leaders hear no in the first couple of months and they just get shut down uh, and they're not willing to make the phone calls in June to make get those visits in July, right? My team's out uh, meeting with donors in July. It's not a quiet month. August, yeah, are people on vacation, certainly. But you know what? We're going to go meet with them at their vacation homes. I'm going to meet with a donor who lives in Chicago, but who goes to uh, goes up in Lake Michigan uh, for uh, for vacation. He's happy to meet with me up there instead of meeting at his office in Chicago. So you know, you hear a no. I'm not going to be in Chicago. All right. Well, where are you going to be? I'm actually going to you know, come up come up that way. You got to learn to overcome those objections. Uh, don't let it hurt your ego. Um, and, and don't be scared of it. Uh, look at it as an opportunity. Awesome. Uh, what's the, the best professional development book that you've read and would recommend to our listeners? Goodness, so many to choose from. Um, listen, my first, my, my kind of favorite of all time that I read every year is required reading for anyone in nonprofits or in fundraising. That's Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I pull it off my shelf every year. It's an easy read. It's short. It's a lot of great stories. It's a classic, but I think a classic for a good reason. I buy 20 at a time and hand them to interns and people that I meet with uh, regularly because I'm such a, a fan of Dale Carnegie and his work. Um, you know, one that I, uh, the most recent kind of good professional development book that I've read um, is a book, and, and you've probably not heard of this. I, I hadn't before a couple of months ago. It was called Battle Tested, uh, and it's about the lessons uh that were exhibited during the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War. Oh, wow. Okay. My, my dad took me on an awesome trip, a father-son trip uh, over Father's Day, just a couple of weeks ago to Gettysburg. We did three days. It was about uh, you know, Christian leadership, manhood, raising sons, uh, leadership, American generals. I mean, just really incredible stories uh, over that three-day battle in early early June, you know, 200 years ago, hmm. uh, 100, 100 years ago. And um uh, there are so many good parallels. We're learning about Robert E. Lee and Grant and Stonewall Jackson and just cool, you know, historical, amazing figures, people that led with great character who were on two very different sides uh, of, a, of a, a, you know, a very, very bloody war, but cool kind of bi uh, bi biographies uh, and lessons to be learned uh, during that time. So there, there you go. There's one that I is kind of my favorite of all time. And then there's the, there's the one that I, I read most recently, Battle Tested. It was by... Um, Tom Bossler, uh, I think it was the author's name. It was excellent. I'm going to have to go check that out. Um, what's the most insightful learning you've had about our sector over the last year or two? You know, we did, um, 
it's been in, with the with the pandemic and the recession and and that period is obviously yeah, impacted by the political cycles as well. We did an analysis over the last thirty years to see what's the impact of a down economy and then maybe a um, uh, you know the uh, the a party that's unfavorable to us uh, in the White House or in control of Congress and what's the impact on fundings. Uh, and we found that it was different. It's different from membership donors, folks who are generous but give less than $10,000 a year, and different for people that give major gifts. For major gifts, the thing that impacts their giving a lot more uh, is the economy, right? Mm-hmm. And is the stock market. And that's not, should not be an excuse. There's still an opportunity there. Look at the stock market over the last five years. We're doing better now, even though we're at a dip than we were um, five, 10 years ago. Uh, but on the membership side, we're actually a lot less impacted by the economy and by inflation uh, and a lot more so by the political cycles. Uh, a lot of the giving there is a lot more emotional. And, uh, and so that was, uh, and that was insightful for me because I, I wouldn't have thought to make that distinction. I would have thought that the recession and an Im- impact on inflation would impact membership giving a lot more, uh, but, but that's not true, at least for, at least for heritage. And so uh, I'm grateful that we, uh, we're able to kind of take a step back in the midst of the pandemic and, and look at some of those macro trends. And those were the findings that uh, that have been insightful for us and have been really helpful in, in setting expectations and framing giving. Uh, here we are in right July of 2022. Uh, it's an interesting time economically, a really interesting time politically. Um, but history is a good friend and a good teacher in that regard. Well, that's a, a great reminder for organizations and leaders to to. Don't just look at the data, but make sure you understand what it says, right? And and go a level deeper than just saying, well, revenue's up or revenue's down. Yeah. yeah. Andrew, um, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we let you go, where can people find you if they want to get in touch and learn more? Hey, LinkedIn is a is a great place. Uh, you know, look, look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, like I said, I, I'm here in Washington, D.C., if anybody uh, finds me on LinkedIn, uh, Andrew, like you and I did, want to go grab dinner. We certainly, uh, certainly love to get to know fellow travelers out there who are doing good work, important work for causes that are close to our hearts. And we should try to be the best leaders and fundraisers as possible if we believe in that stuff. So look me up there and we'll have a, have a, a steak and a glass of wine together. Awesome. Thanks again for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Have you read my Amazon number one best-selling book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.